Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy talks with Benjamin Brooks, a Becker Freeman Institute research fellow, about what drew Brooks to economics as his field of research, as well as the nuances of understanding game theory, and the role that the Becker Freeman Institute plays in enriching the study of economics at the University of Chicago. Well, Ben, welcome. Thanks for agreeing to uh, talk with us today. I very much look forward to uh, learning about your research, learning about your experience here at the Becker Freeman Institute your experience in Chicago more generally, and your views on economics. And, you know, so let, let, me, let me talk a little bit. Let's get a little introduction. What's your career been like to this point? How'd you get here? Uh, well, I was a, a graduate student at Princeton, and I studied economic theory, and then, uh, you know, became, yeah, became interested in, um, uh, you know, in economic theory and the particular areas of theory that I work on. Uh, uh, game theory in particular, and uh, you know, so then that's where I started. And then, uh, after finishing my graduate studies at Princeton, I came to Becker Friedman Institute. Okay, let me ask you a couple questions. So, so obviously, you have lots of talents, and you could have done lots of things. What, what drew you to economics? What made you say, oh, economics is where I want to apply my talents"? You know, that's a that's a good question. I guess I started college. Um, having um, a broad set of possibilities on my mind as to what I could end up doing, and then you know took some economics courses um, and found that uh, it was a way of thinking about the world that just very much appealed to me. You know, economics is thinking about uh, fundamental questions about human behavior and human decision making, uh, which is important to all of us. And but at the same time, it's using tools that are very uh, methodical and careful, you know, formalizing our ideas about human behavior using the language of mathematics. And I think uh, that combination is very appealing to me as a way to talk precisely about, you know, what's actually a, an extremely rich and complicated subject. So, so I guess, uh, let me try to digest that a little bit. So, it's a little bit like the Goldilocks story. I mean, the way I see what you're saying here, because it's like it's just right in a sense for you, because on the one hand, it's about fundamental questions of human behavior that we can think about are applicable to lots of things in life, and overall well-being, and macroeconomic phenomena, microeconomic phenomena, social phenomena, all those things. But it sounds to me like you were attracted also by the toolkit, that this was it had a well-defined, I hear coming from you, set of tools that one could say, okay, I can master these tools and I can use these tools to attack some important issues. So it's, is, that, is that what you're saying? The combination of those two things, interesting questions and a well-honed or at least potentially well-honed toolkit? Um, I think that's close to, to uh, how I feel about it. So, you know, there are mathematical tools that we use in our work. And you know, one could like those tools and like mathematics independently of the particular questions that one's working on. And you know, there are mathematicians that do absolutely beautiful work. 
I guess um, that's what I'm asking. Why, but, why but, economics as opposed to mathematics? Right. And why economics as opposed to another field of social science? But I guess I don't look at uh, the, you know, I do find the mathematics beautiful, but I don't think it's because of that that I appreciate its use within economics. I think, um, you know, I start from really liking these questions about why do people behave the way they do. And in my view, what characterizes economics as a distinct science is this methodological uh, commitment to thinking about individual decision making. You know, even macroeconomists who are talking about the behavior of, of entire countries um, are thinking about countries as an aggregate of individual decisions. Um, and that, that, I think, is the uh, primitive piece of economics that I, I really love and am interested in. But then, you know, once you're interested in, in individual decision making, there are a lot of different tools and, and ways in which you can imagine approaching that, uh, some more heuristic and some more uh, logical, perhaps. And I think what I like about uh, the way that economics uses um, uh, its tools is that it provides, you know, we, we've sort of coordinated on a very precise language in which to talk about um, these phenomena that we're interested in. And I think that makes our conversation precise and it allows us to, to reach sharper conclusions than um, you know, we would be able to if we, if we didn't use mathematics. Okay, so again, though, it, it is so it's a combination of what you're trying to study and yeah. the importance of what you're studying and the ability to study it in a systematic way yeah, that right. you think ultimately is going to allow us to make progress. It, it, and, and, and the reason, I guess what I'm saying, I'm hearing you say, that kind of corrects the statement I made before, makes it clearer, is it's the utility or the usefulness of the toolkit. Absolutely. Not the beauty of the toolkit. Absolutely. Is that attracts you to it. Absolutely. And I think you like the toolkit because it has a lot of useful tools. I like the toolkit because what it brings and the kind of conversation that it facilitates. Um, you know, and I think even within economics, it's not that we you know only communicate through mathematics. We have uh, in casual discussion, informal introductions to what we're working on. Um, but often I find that there, are, there is confusion or disagreement when you're in the introduction to a talk or reading the introduction to a paper. But then you get to the model and all of a sudden everyone knows what we're all talking about and you can have a much more um, focused discussion and, and clearer discussion um, about the issues. Yeah, one of the biggest problems though is when you try to go full circle and then say, okay, well, what did that teach us about the problem I was right, interested in? Right. That's again where the disagreements seem to come up. Right, right. No, but if you can reduce some statement about behavior to a set of primitive axioms and then focus your debate on whether or not we agree on those axioms, I think it's a much more productive way to have a, have a discussion. Um, you know, because there's this clear language of expressing, you know, what, what our conclusions depend on at so, the end of the day. But then at the end of the day, that implies that economics in this economic approach that you talk about in terms of this toolkit or um, set of tools should be evaluated on whether those tools ultimately prove useful, sure. not like their aesthetic value. Well, I didn't sure. get the right answer, but it sure looked good trying. That's right. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, I think we can appreciate aesthetic value while we're going along, but at the end of the day, we want to... Um, we want to make progress on understanding questions um, that we care about and uh, 
and I think the ultimate value of the tools has to be measured in whether or not we accomplish that. I agree. But, but again, building tools is an important part of your approach, and I see that in your research, that you right. sort of say, even though I'm trying to get here, mm -hmm. I'm trying to accomplish and understand this about the world, mm -hmm. maybe the best way to get there is not headlong, just try to get there. Let's try to build some tools right. and build some frameworks that may ultimately get us to answer that question, but hopefully help us answer a bunch of other questions that maybe didn't even motivate my analysis in the first place. That's right, that's right. I mean, and I work on game theory, and to a large extent, game theory is about building very general purpose models and studying large classes of models uh, that can then be used to study all, all sorts of uh, phenomena uh, that we're interested in. You know, I study um, repeated games that can be used to study the way individuals provide insurance to one another over time. Or it can be used to study the way firms interact in a market and set prices over a long period of time, where they know that you know, even though we're interacting today, we're also going to be interacting tomorrow and the day after. And the way I interact with you may have an impact on our future interactions. Okay. So. Now, one of the criticisms historically that many people have made of game theory is you know, there is many answers, there's as many models and answers as there are, you know, molecules in the universe. That, you know, somehow it seems like game theory has been short on ultimate predictions about these kinds of questions as a, and, and, and it seemed very sensitive to the assumptions. Mm -hmm. How do you, how does your research help us make progress on that or does it help us make progress against that alternative is this is this kind of making thinking about a more general set of frameworks or thinking about things more generally is that going to help us get or is that just going to make the the set of imprecise predictions even less precise i mean that's an interesting aspect to me uh <laughs> that's a tough question i guess but um, I'm entitled to ask a few tough ones. No, no, it's a, it's a perfectly fair question. I guess I think that um, I think there are plenty of examples where game theory gives sharp predictions. But of course, you know, it, it depends on what you put in. If you're willing to make strong assumptions, then game theory will give you sharp predictions. Um, but I also think that it's, uh, it's an evolving field. And I think uh, we understand more and more about um, you know, how to build models in game theory that are going to give sharp predictions. But I, I hear your research as having a somewhat different message as well, though, that by adding more to the model, I may actually get sharper predictions. Yeah, yeah. As opposed, which is interesting, because right. it sort of says I can make things more complicated in one sense. Yeah but yet get more out of it, which kind of runs counter to this whole idea you get out what That's you right. put in. That's and, right. And I, so how think, is that? How does well, that work? I think there's another perspective which is kind of opposite to the one that, that uh, you started with, Kevin, which is that uh, actually uh, a lot of game theory in the past has made strong assumptions and gotten very price predi precise predictions, uh, but maybe those assumptions lack in realism or aren't a good fit for a lot of the markets or aspects of the economy that we want to study. So an example of this is uh, I work on auction theory, you know, studying um, institutions for uh, determining who is going to get some good and uh, you know what they're going to pay for the good for, 
for example, although you can, you can think of um, other institutional design problems in uh, using these tools. Um, and, you know, this is uh, a problem that, or, or we, you know, we interact with these institutions all the time in our lives and the government is constantly uh, uh, allocating public resources, you know, deciding who can drill for oil on public lands or who can, um, who can harvest timber in government, in public uh, forests. Uh, anyone who's ever purchased a house understands the problem of bidding on a house and, uh, and the strategic concerns about figuring out how much I should bid. And um, so, so, you know, I work on, I work on understanding those kinds of institutions. And the classical uh, perspective in game theory is to make, um, you know, somewhat strong assumptions about the kind of information that people have about what the good is worth to them and to others. So um, sometimes people call private value, exactly, common exactly. value, whatever. Right, so a common assumption is that I know exactly what the good is worth to me, uh, but actually I have no information about what the good is worth to others, the so-called independent private values model, uh, which is a beautiful model and a great starting point for thinking about behavior in auctions because it has very precise Other predictions. Other than the distribution of what the, we typically assume we know right. the range, for a layman, kind of the range of other people's potential valuations, even though right. I don't know where in that range any one individual happens right. to be. Right. The guys in the room with me, I don't. Right, right. and I may know sort of globally uh, what the distribution of willingness to pay for this good looks like, but Beyond that, I don't have any extra information. In, I don't know if I have a lot of high bidders in the auction with I don't me know. or low yeah. bidders yeah. or yeah. whatever. Right, uh, which is an extremely strong assumption and, and probably you know, both those assumptions that I exactly know my value and don't have any information about your value is probably at odds with economic intuition in a lot of markets where you, know, you think about uh, bidding for oil fields, for example, where you know, I, I don't know how much oil is in the ground. I, you know, can look at various data sources, maybe drill test wells or look at seismic reports, but those don't tell me exactly what I'll end up with. And at the same time, what I learn about how much oil there is in the ground actually contains a lot of information about what others, what, what the good would be worth to others as well. So, you know, the independent private values model um, entails strong assumptions and it gives you very sharp predictions about exactly how much you should bid depending on what you think is your willingness to pay. But it's an unrealistic model. So, you know, some of my research is about actually um, making the model uh, more complicated in the sense of looking at different models of information. You know, models where I don't know exactly what my value is. Models where maybe I learned something about my value and I also get some information about what your value is. Uh, and thinking about what restrictions that places on behavior. Okay, so now these questions, the idea that that was a very restrictive model. That's not new. Well, it's not new to you. <laughs> no, I mean, no, so, absolutely But not. you added value by having a way to kind of approach that problem and maybe yeah. answer the, that existing question I think better so. than had been done before. I think so. I think on the face of it, uh, so, uh, you know, recent project uh, that I've been working on is studying the first price auction. The first price auction where everyone who's interested in buying the good announces the price that they'd like to pay and whoever says the highest price is gonna get the good 
and pay exactly what, what they said. Uh, you know, which to a first order seems like a good approximation of a lot of institutions we see in the world like bidding for a house, for example. Um, and this is like a one shot, yeah, send in yeah, your bid. Just one this shot. is like a construction, government is auctioning off the right to build a building. Yeah. In that case, it's the lowest bidder, yeah. but who cares? It's exactly. the same basic idea. Everybody writes in an envelope what their number is, they send right. it in, the government opens up all the envelopes right. and right. says, you win. Sure, and obviously, real world auctions are much more complicated if you're bidding on a government contract you have to you know, submit a plan for exactly what you're going to do, and it probably includes all sorts of contingencies. But you know, to develop intuition about what's going on, we think about a simple model where I just yeah. submit a number, which is the amount that I want to pay for it, um, so or the simple, amount that I'm willing to be you brought in some of these other aspects right, right, right. that I don't have complete information about what the good's worth to me. Right, right, right. And so, or do I know exactly what's going on with you? Right, and of course there actually are models where, where that have those features that have been studied in economics, um, but still they're, they're uh, looking at very particular cases. For example, a case that was never, you know, that, that's very difficult to study is when I learn something about my value and I get a separate piece of information that tells me something about your value. That turns out to be an extremely complicated model in a first price auction because um, you know, on the one hand, I'm going to bid more if I think the good is worth more, but I may also bid more if I think the competition is more stiff. You know, so you, so, you're going to think it's worth more. Yeah, if I think the other guys think it's worth more, then I'm going to, you know, obviously if you think everyone else thinks the good is worthless, then I'm going to bid nothing, uh, no matter what my value so is. So you're saying in a real world situation, how much I bid is influenced not just by how much I think it's worth to me, Absolutely. And this other piece of information may provide no information about what it's worth to me. Absolutely. But yeah. if it provides information about what it's worth to others, it should affect my bidding. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, and, right, so that, that actually is a feature of the first price auction, the sensitivity of your bid to what you think others are bidding, yeah. and, and you know, in, indirectly what you think the good is worth to other people. This, um, this sealed bid first price auction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about an ascending, what about a outcry kind of first price auction. So there it may still be sensitive, but for other reasons. But, but okay. it'd be different. If it, it would be different because, you know, say we had uh, an English auction where the bid is going up over time and I see how much others have bid in the past. You know, in that case, I don't face this, uh, this um, uncertainty about what others are going to bid because, of course, that's revealed over the course of the auction and, and I can adjust my behavior in response to how I see others bidding. But even in that case, you know, say I don't know exactly what the value of the good is. Okay? I have some idea, but I don't have precise information. And actually others know something about the value that's important to me. Then I may have a complicated problem of trying to figure out what, what the way others are bidding means uh, for what the good is worth to me. But I was thinking that extreme case where what he, his bidding process is, right. is, he doesn't tell me anything about what it's worth to me. Right. In your seal build case, that would still figure into my bid, but Even in an outcry case. kind of auction, maybe not. Sure, sure, and that is a classic argument actually for using outcry you know, or an English auction with an ascending price. Right. But at the same time, we see first price auctions in use all over the place. Absolutely, so, that's one of the questions I was going to come to. Does right. you, does, again, and this I think is the theme I heard you talk about, we talked about before, which is you're making this model more general, right. but at the same time, 
that's helping us explain things that we see. It's, right, right. It's, it's making the model more useful. I think it is. Um, well, okay, so I think there are a few reasons why we want to make it more general. Um, you know, one is that um, you know, the models that we've been using make precise predictions, but those rest on strong assumptions. It's important to know what kind of behaviors we're ruling out, okay, I think, first of all, because uh, we don't want, you know, because that really tells us what the content is of the assumptions that we were previously making. Uh, and uh, I think that's especially important in combination with empirical work that tries to uh, rationalize the way we see people bidding in the world um, uh, by, uh, you know, through a model of, of what the good is worth uh, to those individuals. Um, so I suppose that's actually a second reason why I think it's important, which is having uh, good models to bring to the data that uh, make plausible assumptions. Um, but I think, a, you know, a, a another reason is that, um, you know, often uh, there's a choice of what kind of institution to use to sell a good. And uh, we'd like to know what are good institutions to use and what are not good institutions to use. And it's possible that this kind of richer analysis of a first price auction or of a second price auction is going to reveal features um, that actually change the way we, uh, we rank those mechanisms. Or if you see people using a particular mechanism, you say, well, why in the world are they using that? That's right. You might say, well, they're just too stupid to use something that's else. Right. Or maybe that's a good mechanism to use that's in right. the world that they actually face, even though it doesn't look so smart in the world that that's I right. assume that they face. That's right. So let me give you an example. And, and this is, you know, again, something that's, uh, that was previously observed and well-known. But uh, you know, the problem, a potential problem with this ascending price auction is that it's susceptible to collusion. You, know, you could have a bidding ring where the bidders get together in advance and agree that uh, all but one of the uh, bidders are not going to participate or they're going to make token bids. And then one is going to bid a large amount. And actually, you know, that one that bids a large amount is going to bid, um, you know, is is willing to stay in a really long time, and everyone knows it, which sort of justifies why it's not even worth participating in the auction. Uh, so there's a concern that, that uh, uh, either second price sealed bid auctions. So you're saying the collusion is kind of enforceable, because exactly. let's, let's say I can show you, we meet in the hotel room, I show you my valuation, I say, look, I'm gonna bid up to 1,000. I know you're only billing willing to bid 900, so you're exactly. gonna lose. Exactly. We don't need an agreement for you to say, I'm giving up then. I'm That's right. Giving. I mean, it's an, and it's a little bit fragile because, you know, maybe I'm going to lose, but in the ascending auction, there's no harm in me staying in to wait right. and see how the price evolves. Of course, there's harm for the guy who actually is ultimately going to get the good. But, right. um, but nonetheless, this is, uh, there, there are equilibria, you know, there are plausible outcomes of the auction uh, that have this collusive uh, structure. Uh, on the other hand, a first price auction does not have those kinds of collusive equilibria. And um, you know, that's true both in the, in the classical uh, models, but... but uh, you I know, won't the, know if you're cheating. No, it's, it's true. Yeah, I won't, with, Until after the fact. You won't know if I'm cheating or if uh, the... Yeah, I'm saying <laughs> I agree. Like, take in the, in the ascending price auction, right? Yeah. I, I convince you that I'm willing to go up to 1,000. Right. I know you only want right. to go 900. So the agreement is, well, you'll just bid 500 and I'll get it for a 501 exactly. and we'll be done. Exactly. I can see in the ascending price auction 
whether you're cheating on that agreement and you're now bidding 510. Sure. When you submit your bids. Sure, sure. And that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Uh, not exactly, actually. So Why? Well, um, you know, I, in my uh, kind of analysis, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about a fixed mechanism, a fixed auction format. Uh, you know, but why I'm, is there more collusion in one than the other? What I'm saying is that in the English auction, there is an equilibrium where it's optimal for some of the bidders to bid token amounts because they know that the other bidder is going to bid an astronomical amount. But how is that related to collusion? It would seem to me that the reason that that makes collusion easier mm -hmm. is because if the guy were to then deviate from that to another strategy, mm -hmm. I would become very aware of it well, in the auction, okay. but I wouldn't see it in the sealed bid auction. He can, the benefits to cheating are much greater. Sure. The uh, firm, you know, whoever the bidders are could somehow retaliate against one another in subsequent interactions. Yeah, I'm saying, so let, let's I say we embed this in a, in a repeated game. Absolutely, absolutely. Then the, which of these structures we have would have a big influence on the extent to which that repeated game would allow us to That's true. collude. That's true. But even aside from that concern, there are other reasons to be concerned about collusion in English auctions. In other words, we don't even need the future interaction in order to justify this collusive outcome. And it doesn't really matter whether or not I observe uh, or what I observe about the way you're bidding. Um, so let me give you an example to maybe clarify it. I don't understand why that isn't tied into whether that other equilibrium exists. Let me give you an example okay. to try and, and clarify this point. Uh, here's a different auction format, the second price, price sealed bid auction, um, which in many ways is, is actually quite similar to this ascending price auction, where all of the bidders submits a secret uh, price and the winner is going to be the one who submits the highest price, but they actually pay the, the second, second highest, yep. right? Okay, so um, now that auction also has collusive equilibria, where all but one of the bidders submits zero as their price, and then the remaining one submits a million, or some astronomically large amount, okay? Now the reason why that's in equilibrium is because all of these guys who are bidding zero you know, they could change their bids and try to get the good, but the only way to do that would be to bid more than a million. And if you did that, you're going to pay a very high price. On the other hand, the guy who's bidding a million, you know, he's just going to pay this token amount that everyone else bid. So, you know, for that reason, everyone is actually happy uh, bidding the amounts that they are, even though, actually, there's no way for this guy who's bidding a million to verify, well, he can verify, of course, because he knows the price that he pays. Um, but. But that one doesn't depend on enforcement. That's for a different reason. That's. I think it's the same. It's the same phenomenon in the ascending uh, bid auction. You know, you believe. Let's say it's you and me. You believe that I will stay in and keep bidding until the price is a million. You know. Even though I won't, but will I really do that in the ascending price auction? I probably wouldn't. Okay. In the ascending price auction, I'm the one who would renege on that deal, right? I, Fair I'm enough. the guy who, when it was only worth a thousand to me, would have an incentive to say, wait a minute. Okay, fair I'm enough. not really gonna build that million. Right, right, right. And so. It depends, yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I think that's a fair point. And, uh, you know, there are, 
models of the English auction where it would be harder to sustain that kind of occlusive behavior. Um, but it also depends on exactly what uh, the bidders know about their values. So for example, suppose that actually all of the bidders have very precise information about what the good is worth to one another. You know, in that case, whoever has the highest willingness to pay, uh, you know, we could know that that guy is actually just going to keep bidding until his value, and so it's not even worth me participating in the auction. I might as well just, you know, bid right. some token amount or not bid at all. But it's also not, I mean, the, the thing that's also interesting is how robust is it to small deviations from the game you set up? Now you sure. say there's a little bit of participation cost. Sure. Suddenly, the kinds of equilibria that exist changed dramatically. That's true. That's true. That's and, true. You know. Yeah. So I think these are all, you know, very important, uh, very important concerns and and sensitivities of the standard models we use. Um, you know, in my research in particular, I think I've focused on. Uh, particular uh, forms of sensitivity of these models. In particular, the sensitivity like we were talking about before to uh, exactly how you model what I know about what the good is worth to me and what I know about the good, what the good is worth to you. Um, and you know, even aside from uh, these issues of collusion, you know, even just, just thinking about this first price auction uh, mechanism that we see all over the place in the world, um, you know, different assumptions about information can have a big impact on bidding behavior, can have a big impact on the revenue outcome of that auction. So that's what I'm, what I'm trying so to understand. Is there a place in the world where you could say, well, having looked at the world this way and thought about these informational issues, mm -hmm. that helps me understand why I see what I see in the world? That, that I, I might have expected to see something else based on prior research, but mm -hmm. my analysis has told me, well, geez, that's why I think I see what I do. I think uh, in, there in, are... Any examples of that you would point to? That is a good question. I think um, that there are all sorts of examples. I, so I would... Um, I would say that there are all sorts of examples of markets where I think information has a complicated form yep. that's not um, accurately described by any of our classical models. Um, so, you know, I think if we want to understand those markets, it's um, you need a more flexible model. Uh, so. You know, a common exercise that uh, applied economists do is study bidding behavior in a particular market and try to understand whether or not that auction is functioning well or functioning poorly. Okay? And whether or not it's functioning well depends on what you think the good is worth to the people who are actually bidding. So you would say, market. I might have a market where, based on a standard model, I conclude the market's safe. Functioning poorly, exactly. But actually, it may be doing a good job of exactly in a more complicated way. Exactly. Like for example, suppose you're concerned about you know whether or not the government gets good prices for uh, goods and services that it wants to purchase, or whether or not the government is is uh, obtaining sufficient revenue for selling public resources. You know, in that case, um, you know the answer to that question is going to depend on uh, what you think. 
people are bidding relative to what the good is actually worth. Yep. Okay? So you have to have a, a method for figuring out what they're worth, what, what, what these bidders think the good is worth, just from observing their bidding behavior. Um, and the standard approaches, or many of the standard approaches that we have to that problem, make assumptions like, I know exactly what the good is worth to me, that the bidders know exactly what the good is worth to them. Or they make assumptions like, I don't get any information about what your uh, value is, except for maybe just knowing what my willingness to pay is. Okay, so let me, let me try to translate that for someone. Okay. So, so in the, what a traditional approach to analyzing these problems is, I set out a pretty specific model of yeah. bidding be, of the environment, yeah. which leads to a pretty strong prediction about the way in which people bid. Right. I then don't really know what a good is worth because I never actually get to see that. Right, I right. really, all I get to see is people's bids, but in those models, I can back out what it's worth from their bidding behavior. Exactly. And then I can say, well, geez, this model based on that seems to be leaving a lot of money on the table. Right, right, right. But you can come back and say, well, wait a minute. If that's, if you drop some of those assumptions, yeah. there's a view of the values that's actually much more consistent with this auction working well. That's or right. the reverse could be true as well. That's right, that's right. You know, for example, a general principle is that, uh, you know, if there's more correlation between the bidder's values, yeah. then that will induce them to bid more aggressively. So now if you think that there could be correlation, um, then uh, actually that's consistent with uh, you know, the auction performing better in terms of revenue because you know, the value, the willingness to pay that would rationalize the bidding behavior that you observe is much closer to the bids. Yes. Right? Um, so one reason for that might be that uh, uh, you know, there's correlation in our values. Maybe we also actually get precise information that our values are similar, which would also induce more aggressive bidding. You know, so those are both uh, um, plausible explanations of aggressive bidding behavior that would lead to a more optimistic evaluation of a, of a particular auction's revenue performance. So this, is, so again, I guess I st I'm seeing a common element here, which is you're going to go back and you're going to take these problems that people have been studying. I mean, these are issues that have been around in economics for right. a while. You're going to say, look, to do a better job of using these models yeah. in practice, yeah. we have to understand them better. Yeah. And we have, to, we have to add some missing elements. Yeah. And now most people would characterize that as economic theory, that we're doing theory as opposed to empirical work. Right. But I hear you as telling me, well, doing more theory is often the way to expand our ability to explain the world. Oh, that's right. And I think that auction theory in general is a great example of the complementarity that exists within economics between uh, theory and empirical work. You know, because these uh, you know, classical models of auction theory that we've been talking about, say bidding and first price auctions, you know, more applied economists have uh, been taking those models for a long time and using them uh, with data to try and infer, say, the willingness to pay that rationalizes bidding behavior. So, you know, really I think there's a, there's a tight complementarity between developing better models and better empirical work. Um, there's, a, there's another piece that I want to add. I got add. a question before, oh. that, before you go on, which okay. is a lot of work on auctions in economics. Yeah. I mean, yet 
while auctions are important, most goods that we buy on a daily basis aren't allocated necessarily in auctions. That's right. Is the understanding we gain from auctions limited to auctions, or does it help us understand the broader set of markets and worlds that we see? The, the much greater fraction of goods that are allocated in more traditional price setter type environments where the either the market is setting the prices or individual sellers are setting prices. Is it, do you think this is limited to just thinking about government procurement and explicit auctions, or do you think these, app, these apparatuses that you've talked about developing in the underlying mm -hmm. theory structure mm -hmm. is going to help us understand the broader set of markets out there? Um, so, absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, the kind of tools that I work on can be useful for understanding other kinds of markets. And you've done some of that, right? I have done some of that. So I have some research which is on um, price discrimination by monopolists. That's the, that's the work I have in mind here. So okay. this, is, this okay. wouldn't come into the auction literally. That people would say, this is not auction. This is a, this is a price setter out right, there right, setting right, prices. Right, right, right. I guess you know it's connected with the uh, with the the comment I was going to close on, which is that, you know, another uh, a, a big piece of this work is that I don't know what the right model is of information, you know, in the auction setting, and maybe there are many um, um, markets um, with a you know that are um, uh, populated by a monopolist where I don't know what the right model is of what the monopolist knows about their consumers. Now, and when you say monopolist, you don't literally mean the sole seller out there of, well, of, right? You mean somebody, I mean, somebody who's out monopoly there, power. Who, somebody who's out there setting prices, choosing, yeah. you know, he's not a wheat farmer, but you know, we, we need not limit this to the sole seller of a different class of commodities. Maybe he has a unique product. Right. But this theory, again, in the spirit we've been talking about, would apply to lots of people out sure, there. Sure, 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 Lots sure, of sure. behavior. That's right, that's right. I mean, I've uh, applied this theory in somewhat more um, stylized models. Like, for example, thinking about the abstraction where there really is a single seller for this good. Right. But of course, it's a general methodology that I work with that could be applied to understand uh, very general markets. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I was going to say, Kevin, is that um, you know we were talking about how a lot you know so there are um, a lot of classical models in game theory that rely on very particular assumptions, say about information. And you know my view is that um, information is something that's very hard to measure in the in the real world. You know there's very few situations where we think we really uh, can measure directly or observe directly what one economic agent believes about the private information of other economic agents. We can try to infer it from the way they behave, but we seldom observe it directly. So part of um, the research agenda that I work on is rather than making specific but somewhat ad hoc assumptions about information, actually trying to consider a range of possible models of information and make um, uh, and put bounds basically on the economic outcomes that we care about, which in, in, a some sense, in some sense is going to be a weaker result because rather than being able to say this must be the outcome, all we're going to know is that 
the outcome has to be in this range, but it's also safer because, and, uh, because the conclusion that the outcome we care about has to be in this range is less sensitive to uh, potentially ad hoc assumptions. Um, so, you know, to talk about that in, in a setting that's um, uh, aside from the auction context, uh, you know, we, we were just. Uh, that's kind of what some of your auction work is done, but it's also exactly. what. It's also what my work on monopoly pricing has done. So, for example, suppose we have a market where, um, you know, there's a lot of variation across consumers in willingness to pay for a good. Um, then, you know, there's uh, an incentive actually for firms to uh, try and find out. Or, or learn something or use available information about consumers' willingness to pay for the good in order to tailor the price. You know, because if I know that this consumer is willing to pay a very high price, then of course I would like to charge that consumer a high price. And then if some other consumer is only willing to pay a low price, then, then of course I'll just charge everybody what they're willing to pay. And uh, on the whole, you know, that would generate greater revenues for the monopolist or for the seller. Um, but, uh, and, and there's an extremely long literature in economics studying discriminatory pricing, studying the impact that uh, discriminatory pricing will have on how well, how well markets function, uh, you know, how much surplus will be generated. Um, and you know, again, like, uh, like the auction case that we were talking about before, that classical literature looks at um, examples that have a lot of structure on exactly uh, you know, what the willingness to pay looks like in different groups of consumers. Mm -hmm. um, and it leads to, uh, in many cases, you know, sharp predictions about what should be the welfare consequences of discriminatory pricing. Um, but at the same time, you know, those are strong assumptions. And we think that actually in the real world, it's entirely possible that uh, demand curves and willingness to pay is much more complicated than the ones that are assumed in order to get those sharp results. So some of my research is looking at how and what we would be able to say. What are the empirically testable uh, consequences of just knowing, for example, what the average distribution looks like of willingness to pay across the entire market? What are the, cons and what are the consequences of that for the outcome of discriminatory pricing? If all we know is that across the entire market, this is what uh, the distribution looks like of willingness to pay, and we know that the monopolist, whatever information the monopolist has, is going to set prices optimally. Uh, what, what are the possible welfare outcomes? Does and what can sense? you learn from a given set of observed outcomes? Well, actually, it's um, one thing we learn is actually a kind of negative result. In a sense, there's very little that we can say without having more information about um, exactly what demand looks like amongst different groups of consumers. Just knowing what the willingness to pay looks like across the entire market is extremely uninformative. So I would say, it, you know, in some sense it's a negative result because it says that um, there's very little empirical content to just assuming that, there's a, that the monopolist is setting prices optimally um, without saying exactly what kind of information the monopolist has. But on the other hand, it clarifies what, uh, what we need to do empirically, which is that if we really want to understand what the welfare consequences will be of setting different prices for different consumers in healthcare markets. So let's try really to put to, some meat on this. Okay. So I see a seller and he's got five different prices and selling a certain amount at each of those prices. That's what I see in equilibrium. Sure. 
and you're saying, well, what does that tell me about? Now, absent any other information, that's all I see. Right. Is the five prices and five quantities. Well, that I think will tell you extremely little about exactly. how much surplus you're getting relative okay. to. So uh, now let's potential. add some, uh, some, but what other kinds of information would we think we would have as an economist well, studying this market? Well, okay, so, I mean, there's just an absolutely enormous uh, so amount of work in economics on trying to estimate demand curves, yes. right? And, um, you know, it's a very complicated problem, and you need some source of variation in prices that allows you to trace out how the number of uh, consumers varies uh, with prices. Um, now, there may be a situation where you know, the monopolist has been setting, or the seller has been setting the same prices for everyone, and maybe we've seen variation, but we've only seen variation in the price for everyone. So that has allowed us to figure out what the demand curve looks like across the entire market. Okay, so you're but, saying, what if I had a market where there was no price discrimination, and was, I was exactly. able to identify the demand curve that's from right. that. So let's that's assume right. I got that. So yes. maybe that's a competitive market that for some reason I can assume right. is in other ways the same as this quote monopolized market. Right, 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 right. Then I see the monopoly market and I see my five prices and a bunch of quantities. Yeah, yeah. Now there's some restrictions on what that could possibly look like given the first one because yes. I can't have it. But assume it's consistent with that. Yes what can I say about... That's exactly the point, is that you can't say very much if that's even the only information that, you have. Even given that, because you don't that, know who's getting what. Well, you don't know if the monopolist were to, or the seller were to start setting different prices, um, exactly how the monopolist can set different prices. There are a lot of possible... Well, let's say I had two markets, and I had one market that I had seen a range of competitive prices, and so okay. I would identify the demand curve. Okay. And then I saw another market where I saw a specific outcome of a monopolist charging these five prices and selling right. this much right. at each price. Right, right. Now there's some lower bounds. There's some bounds I can put on surplus clearly in that market. Absolutely, absolutely. You can put bounds, okay, so, so your thought experiment is I know uh, is it, this is another market which is Let's, thought to be similar to the one that well, we're interested in evaluating? Well, I thought that was kind of the structure you were thinking <laughs> about, where I knew something beyond just the monopolist outcome. Just I don't just know that. Right. It seems if I, I know, know that, I don't know squat. I also know something about the shape of the demand curve in this market in the aggregate. Okay, so like I know the, I know the market demand curve. I mean, exactly. Now we're getting very abstract here, but the idea basically... And I could know different levels of things. I could know the entire demand curve. Right. I could maybe only know one point on that demand curve. Because right, I might right, have right. seen an equilibrium where there was a single price right. in the market. Exactly, exactly. And then the question is, what can I learn from that? Right, it, that's right. And the answer is that basically uh, you learn very little if that's all you know. You know, all you learn is that you know, if the monopolist were to start uh, setting different prices for different groups of consumers. The monopolist can't be worse off. Uh, consumers have to, you know, of course, they voluntarily participate in this market, so uh, they have to be paying weekly less than, than their willingness to pay, on average. Uh, and there's an upper bound on the total surplus which can be generated in the market. 
Basically, those are the only things that you can say about the welfare outcome if that's the information that you start because with. Because you can fill in the right. in-between parts. Right, right. So, but, but stepping back a little bit, you know, this is part of a broader agenda of, thinking, of developing uh, tools for thinking about, um, uh, uh, for having flexible models of information uh, that we can take to the data. In this so case, you it's the monopolist information you're thinking about here. That you that, is that the information that that I'm being flexible about. I'm not saying what the monopolist knows and doesn't know. Exactly, not saying what the monopolist knows about different kinds of consumers' willingness to pay. But your consumers are still just passive, for exactly. lack of a better term, in this way of looking at the world. They're exactly. not strategic players in this model. No, that's right. They just see a price, if that price is less than what I think the good is worth, I'm going to buy it. Or what yeah, the that's good's what I'm saying. So the tie back to information is about the information possessed by the monopoly. Exactly, exactly. Now the analog is in some sense to auctions is in an auction everybody is a little bit in that monopolist. In many auctions they're in that kind of a game where sure. they're deciding, well, should I bid a little more and maybe that's right. Get the good a little more, or get right. a little less, and get it less often. Right. And so that's the, that's why these are related. They're related because way. because you know, in the, uh, the monopoly pricing example, you have a monopolist who's deciding how much, what price they should set, and you know they anticipate that the number of consumers that purchase is going to respond to that price. In the auction case, you're choosing how much to bid, and how much you bid is going to impact, you know, the uh, how how good the outcome is for you because it's affecting the probability that you'll win and also how much you have to pay in the event that you win. And then I guess that gets me back to my point. That okay. You're getting this toolkit that mm -hmm. you're developing and this way of looking at these these problems mm -hmm. isn't limited to the context that you started in. That's right. You might have started in auctions. Ultimately, you can use it elsewhere. That's right. And in fact, as part of a you know, it's part of a broader uh, research agenda um, that's uh, largely started by two of the guys that I work with, two other researchers who I work with, Dirk Bergerman and Stephen Morris. And they have, you know, been thinking about this problem of, of tools for thinking about the role of information in strategic interactions in a flexible way. And I've been working with them, actually, in these research projects uh, to apply it to, um, to markets and, uh, and, and uh, to specific institutions that we care about. Um, and looking forward, you know, we're trying to develop uh, general tools for uh, inference and, uh, and identification. So for example, say we've seen um, agents bid this way under a particular auction. What if we were to change the auction format? What are the predictions that we can make about how they'll bid in this different uh, in this different auction design, and how much have we learned about that from other contexts from the context we saw? Exactly, kind of the idea. exactly. Which is, of course, a very classical question in economics. But this toolkit is giving us uh, new ways to think about that counterfactual analysis. So this seems to tie back to what got you into economics in the first place, which is this combination of addressing interesting questions, but also the ability to, gen to build a set of tools mm. that's useful for analyzing that broad set of questions. I completely agree.
and uh, and that that gets bring me back to the BFI and kind of one of the things that I think we always have to emphasize to people, which is the BFI is ultimately about tackling some important issues in economics and the mm -hmm. kind of issues that economists are trying to solve. But the path to solving those involves kind of a front, full frontal assault on the empirical front, but also a full assault on the, on the theoretical front, developing the theory and developing the tools Absolutely. that are gonna help us get there. Absolutely. And I guess, can you talk a little bit about your experience at the BFI and how you found those different aspects of things and, and how they fit together in your mind? No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that I've benefited in my research from talking to economic theorists and also talking to applied researchers and thinking about you know, the, uh, the practical concerns of you know, what we actually need of a model of an auction in order to make it empirically relevant. I mean, I think that something that's really amazing about the Becker Friedman Institute is that it brings together uh, researchers in economics and also in other disciplines um, who are, you know, working on uh, understanding the economy, uh, but from different si different parts of the profession, or uh, you know, so you know, the uh, the Becker Friedman Institute is constantly bringing together this amazing set of visitors uh, uh, together with you know, the community at the University of Chicago, and you get applied researchers talking to economic theorists. Uh, you get uh, macroeconomists talking to microeconomists, talking to trade economists. Uh, so, you know, that, that is a, a tremendous uh, benefit to, you know, me personally as a researcher, but also, I think, to the profession uh, for facilitating a dialogue that, you know, wouldn't happen otherwise. So having a very narrow brand would kind of be running in the opposite direction of what we're about here, which is we're not saying there's one way to run a railroad, that right. really there's a variety of approaches right. that are stronger when those approaches are side by side and they can interact. Right. And you know, that's a big part of what I think we try to do here at the BFI is encourage that interaction between micro and macro, between right. historians and people only interested in today, between mm -hmm. theory-oriented and empirically-oriented, econometrics and, 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 and theory. I mean, and I guess you can say from your experience that's proved to be valuable. Absolutely. Is that's it unique? You know, I, I, think there are, um, I think there are some unique aspects of the Becker Friedman Institute in the University of Chicago. I think that uh, this uh, school and community is exceptional amongst places that I've interacted with um, in the level of, of interaction and communication that goes on between um, economists in different subfields and different specialties. Uh, I think there are a lot of places where, you know, sort of naturally um, a department sort of form smaller clusters of people who have common interests. And that happens here to uh, an impressively small degree in the sense that, you know, people just talk to each other a lot. And uh, um, I think uh, that's exceptional. And I think the Becker Friedman Institute is exceptional amongst institutes dedicated to, uh, um, to fostering economic research in the degree to which we want to bring together 
researchers from all fields of economics. You know, there are other institutes out there that I think of as more, say, solely theory-oriented, or other uh, economics institutes that are more oriented towards applied work or empirics. But I think the Becker-Friedman Institute tries to span all of those different aspects of economic research. Yeah, and, and, and not just have, I mean, speaking as somebody who's involved in the Becker-Friedman Institute, right. I think another key aspect, and, and you touched on it very eloquently in what you discussed, and it's not just having a portfolio of, mm -hmm. oh yeah, we got some theorists and they're over here and we got some empirical guys and they're over here and we got some macro guys and over here and micro guys. It's not that we have this like portfolio of separate pieces. We right. really think putting them in a pot and kind of stirring them up exactly. is really the way to, to make the soup. You I know? agree. And yeah. They all end up producing different outputs. Not like we homogenize the output, but I think our view is they'll produce better output if they've had a chance to rub with the other molecules out there that are doing something different. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think you don't want theory just going off in its own direction. Uh, you want it to be grounded in, um, in practical and important questions. And I think that uh, you know, you're more likely to get that when you have a continuous dialogue uh, between theorists and between applied economists. That's my personal view. Cool. So you've, you've enjoyed your time so far at the BFI. I oh, it's, I mean, it's been amazing. Uh, you know, it's been amazing for me in terms of my productivity. Um, and I think it's been also an amazing opportunity to contribute, actually, you know, because um, the uh, um, you know, I, I've been sort of uh, allowed to play a role in uh, developing programming and, and uh, play a role in inviting uh, excellent scholars to come to the institute and interact with the, uh, with the community. And that's been extremely exciting for me. You know, I've had a role in, uh, in organizing conferences um, on, on uh, the subjects which are closest to my heart. Yeah. And, and to put you on the spot, we also rely on your, your judgment a lot of times to help us think about directions we ought to go in and kinds of people we ought to be going after. You know, I mean, you know, we, we really value your input and I think, you, I think that should have become clear, but I just want to make sure you realize that as well. That, uh, and, and that's one of the things I think is exciting about the Institute is that I think we really feel like there's a, a major role to be played by junior people as well as senior people. This is, this is an institute that's there to be really run by the researchers and, and yeah. with a little guidance now and then, <laughs> a little discipline, but uh, nonetheless, it's a very researcher-driven yeah. institute, and I hope you've found that to be true while you've been here. I have, I'm, I'm honored and, uh, um, and extremely flattered by the, uh, the role that I've been given and allowed to take. Uh, you know, there are a lot of, uh, I think it's becoming more common in economics for uh, uh, young um, economists just coming out of graduate school to do a postdoc for a year or two before starting a position as an assistant professor. And, um, you know, I think the position, you know, the research fellow or research scholar position at the Becker Friedman Institute is really unique amongst those postdoc opportunities in the degree to which uh, you can uh, become a participant in uh, helping to run the institute. You know, I think that uh, 
Um, you know, most of the time you're, you're much more of a passive participant, but here there really is an opportunity to contribute um, that I've really appreciated. Another aspect I'll ask you about is, and one of the things we try to pride ourselves on is that when you come to the Becker Friedman Institute as a research scholar or a research fellow or come as a visitor, you're not just visiting the BFI and the circle of people who were at the Becker Friedman Institute. You're really visiting the economics community That's right. in Chicago more broadly. And I think you probably, I certainly have found that to be the case. That your interactions are not limited to just, you know, oh, who's in the BFI as if it's a silo. It's right, really right, right. Not. No, and I think, you know, we're, we're situated in the same building as the storied economics department. We're immediately across the street from the Yeah, Booth right over there. School. We can see them as we sit here. Exactly, exactly. And I think it really is, in many ways, one big community of economists here. Um, and, uh, you know, so I've had, uh, of course, uh, uh, tons of opportunities to interact with the economists at Booth and the economists in the department. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's actually an amazingly large group once you add it all up, you know, the number of economists who were in Booth and in the department at the Harris Public Policy School and, uh, and other people on campus who are interested in these issues, it is a large and, and vibrant community. And we encourage people such as yourself to take advantage of that. It's not like you're stealing away to go visit somebody else when you're here. That's part of what you're here for. Right. I mean, that's the way we see it. No, I think there are enormous complementarities. I think everyone benefits from having um, you know, the visitors coming from elsewhere and, and uh, creating a broader set of ideas that we're all talking about. So. Great, well I'm glad to see you enjoyed the BFI. I've enjoyed talking to you about your research. I've enjoyed talking about where you think you wanna go in economics and how that fits in. I, I think you've helped illuminate our audience why economic theory and studying economic theory is important, why it can help us answer critical questions and is going to make us better economists down the road, uh, and why the Becker Friedman Institute has that dual-prong approach of mm -hmm. both empirical and theoretical economics done together and done maybe by different people but done in an environment in which there's cross-fertilization across those areas. So that's where we're hoping to be and that's where we want to end up and it's been great talking with you and, and uh, certainly great having you here at the Becker Friedman Institute. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank, thanks very thanks, much Kevin. Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.